Amen. Okay, so congratulations for making it here tonight, for being in the X class. There's always a blessing when we're together in the Word. Um, uh, this particular study, the book of Acts, what a joy, what a privilege to be in this book. Uh, if you have internet access, all of the previous classes are online. You can catch up at you will, but we'll try and frame the context for tonight's class for, for everyone. Um, 28 wonderful chapters, Luke being the author. And of course, it starts in Jerusalem and it ends in Rome. And in fact, there is a real transition in the book of Acts, starting in Jerusalem, ending in Rome, Jerusalem being the center of operations for the early church. Then there's a move to Antioch, which is the mission-sending church, a move from Peter being a focal character to Paul being the central character. And especially important is the transition from, um, from the Jews or the Jewish church to the all-inclusive Jew and Gentile church together. And, of course, Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So if we were to give the, a breakdown for the book, we would see that the first seven chapters or so are in Jerusalem. It's estimated that perhaps the first million believers were Jews. Chapters 8 to 12, there's a transitional period. As we've just mentioned, it moves from Peter to Paul. Jerusalem to Antioch, the Jews to the uttermost parts of the world, and Paul's missionary journeys. And that's what starts in chapter 13, three missionary journeys that we studied together. And we just concluded the third one. It really finishes in Acts 21. And now Paul, having returned from the missionary journey, and there's a map there of the third missionary journey. And you can see, though, he starts in Antioch, he ends in Jerusalem, and... Um, doesn't make it back to Antioch because, of course, as we, we looked, he's arrested. And uh, this begins Paul's famous journey to Rome. So this is where we are together. And if you remember back in Acts 19.21, when Paul was still on his third missionary journey, it said, Paul purposed in his spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So this was in Paul's heart. It had actually been um, testified to, to him of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit also that he would, he would, that would be part of his venture. So he had Jerusalem and ultimately Rome uh, in his sights. If you jump ahead to chapter 20, uh, this is when he is in... Hello there, I come right on in. God bless you. Uh, we're just reviewing to start us off. So in Acts 20, um, again, he says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that tr chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me. So Paul certainly knew that trouble, trials, tribulations, opposition were what lay ahead of him. The Holy Spirit had testified of that. So even though he was going to Jerusalem, he didn't know what was going to happen. He knew that chains and tribulations awaited him, but none of those things moved him from his course and his sense of being called to testify of the grace of God. And then in the next chapter, 21, and of course this is when Paul arrives in Jerusalem. He meets James and the other apostles in the church, 
And James says, we've got a problem because all of the Jews have heard these accusations about you, that you are teaching the Jews to forsake Moses. They don't need to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. And of course, this was a false accusation. Paul certainly honored the heritage of the Jews. He loved the Jewish people. He was Jewish. He had a heart for the Jews. But what he taught, it's clear in the book of Romans, was that they were not obligated to keep the law, free to keep the law or free not to keep it. But if you keep it, you do not get your salvation on the basis of keeping the law. That's what Paul clearly taught, Romans 3, uh, 20 and 28, etc. But they skewed this and twisted this and accused him of dishonoring the history, the roots, the culture, the law, Moses, the temple, etc. In fact, if you jump ahead a few verses, when they saw him in the, in the temple, the Jews from Asia cried out and said, this is the man who teaches, notice three things, all men everywhere against our people, against the law, and against the temple. And the additional accusation there, because there was a Gentile in the temple, they accused Paul of bringing him in, but he hadn't done that. So, um, because of this, we remember in this chapter, this is just review, that they wanted to get a hold of Paul, drag him out of the temple and kill him. Remember, a little riot broke out among the Jewish people in the temple. Uh, The Roman governor heard of it, quickly sent troops there to find out what was happening, and this Uh, brings us later in the end of that chapter. The commander came near, took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains and asked who he was and what he'd done. And some in the multitude cried one thing and another and he couldn't ascertain the truth because of the tumult, because of the riot that was going on. And notice the phrase, he couldn't ascertain the truth. Because as we look at this story, there's one character we begin to feel a bit sorry for in here, and it's the commander, because he, he is baffled about what's going on. First of all, he comes to the temple, and we learn from the text that he'd assumed that Paul was this Egyptian who'd led these 4,000 assassins into the wilderness. He assumed that Paul was some high-profile troublemaker to incite such a riot. And as they managed to drag him out and lead him up the stairs from the temple, Paul says, listen, Can I speak to the crowd? And the Roman commander thinks, well, it can't get any worse. Why not? And that's the the chapter we studied. That's chapter uh, 22. At the end of Paul's message, remember the, the, the commander is listening, not understanding the language, just watching the faces and the crowd and the dynamics. And all of a sudden, when Paul gets to a certain word, and it's that he is sent to the Gentiles. That's the word that sparks it off again. All of a sudden, they're screaming and going crazy again. And the Roman commander is watching and saying, here we go again. What did he say that was so offensive to them that once again, they're inflamed and they want to get a hold of him? Little did he know the word was Gentile that referred to him as a Roman, that, that Paul was sent to the Gentiles. So the commander ordered him to be brought back into the barracks and said he should be examined under scourging to find out, and notice this again, that he might know why they shouted so against him. So again, there's the question. The Romans commander wanted to know why 
What is it that this man has done? What is it that he has said? What was it that he said again in the temple that, that made them go crazy again? He wanted to know. He, we like to have that term. He wanted to ascertain the truth. Or, or in the NIV it says, get a hold or get at the truth. So, then he discovers that Paul is a Roman citizen. He says, okay, I'm going to scourge you. They bind him. I'm going to scourge you. Paul says, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman? And they say, oh, goodness me, because before a trial, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, bind or beat or certainly not scourge a Roman. Um, so they feared because of that. And um, so he unbinds him, still wanting to find out what the issue was with this man, And he decides to bring him down to the council. Says, um, but on the next day, desiring to know, here it is again, third time, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet and brought Paul down before the council. So that's the background. It brings us right up to date now. Now we're in chapter 23. Paul is brought before the council. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the council of 70 men. It's like the Jewish Supreme Court, the highest court in Judaism. Um, We we remember it because there there are others who have appeared before this court before. In fact, this is the fourth time in the book of Acts. Um, Not to mention our Lord himself was before the the Sanhedrin, in one of his final mock trials. So he's going to have to answer to, to them, the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Peter and John in Acts 4, then Peter and all the apostles in Acts 5, Stephen, of course, just before he's martyred in Acts 6, and, uh, and here, going into chapter 23, now Paul stands before the Sanhedrin. You may remember... When Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin in the Gospels, I'll read it to you just to give you a refresher. This is from Matthew 26. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Though many false witnesses came forward, finally two came forward and declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witness? Look, now you have heard blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? This is the Sanhedrin. This is that high court in Judaism. And this is who Paul is standing before in this chapter. So if we go to the text in verse 1, it says, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, 
Because he first of all wanted to identify himself as a Jew. Brethren, he says, because that's what's under question, his loyalty to Judaism. And he says, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, he wasn't saying that his conscience never pricked him. He wasn't saying he was perfect. We know what Romans 7 says. Certainly, he had conflict and sin in his life. But he's saying that he believed that there was nothing that he had done that was contrary to God's will in terms of his ministry and his message and what he was accused for. And Paul said this with all purity and truth and a sincere heart. But to them... To their ears, imagine how shocking and blasphemous this must have seemed. That you stand before us because of all that you have done. That you who were Saul of Tarsus and that now you are the, the, the leader of the way, one of the leaders of the way, and you are making claim that that, that, that dead carpenter from Nazareth is the resurrected Messiah. And you stand before us and say you have a pure conscience before God this day? Verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul responded and said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law and you command me to be struck contrary to the law. Perhaps that reminds us also of when Jesus was before the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23 and he said, you are like um, uh, white polished sepulchers or gravestones on the outside, but on the inside filled with dead men's bones. And he's, he was speaking of hypocrisy. And of course, that's what Paul is referring to here that you speak about keeping the law, but that very act was in violation of the law. This is actually a prophetic statement he makes, because nine years after this, Ananias is assassinated by the Jews in the Roman uprising in 66 AD. He was pro-Roman. He was was always... You can read historically about him. He was an evil, evil man. Uh, just to make things for his own good, really. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? We can even sense the lofty hypocrisy uh, in, in that, the pride that was caught up in this, in this system. Verse 5, Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, if you read different commentaries, they all kind of stumble over this and have different opinions about did Paul really know this was the high priest? Was this irony? Was this sarcasm? Or did he have a problem with his eyes? And you can plow through them and you can come up with your own conclusion. It's not crystal clear. Uh, some believe that Paul did have a particular eye problem. And legitimately, perhaps, remember back then, they didn't have contact lenses and glasses. And if you were looking across the room, it would be very common for people just to have to live with the fact that people were a bit blurry. It's possible that he couldn't see that it was the high priest. Um, We don't know for sure. But Paul, um, sensing that he wasn't going to get a fair trial, suddenly realizes in verse 6, 
that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees. Now, these are two um, factions within Judaism, uh, and they are in some ways quite contrary to one another. Of course, in terms of the Old Testament scriptures, there's a real common ground, but there are certain things that they differ on. You could say that um, the Pharisees were a little bit more to the right, the Sadducees a little bit more to the left. Um, They didn't agree on everything. And Paul realizes, oh, there's a mix here. So what he does, he realizes that the place is, you know, very combustible at that moment. And he takes a little match and he just throws it in there by saying, verse 20, verse 6, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't believe. So it's sad, you see, that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They do, I'm sorry. That's, that's as good as they get, yeah. So he kind of puts a cat among the pigeons and just steps back to see what will happen. And it has the effect that he thought it would. All of a sudden, the Pharisees start siding with him and the Sadducees start even more so being against him. So a dissension arose between them and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees, and Luke throws in a little explanation for anyone who might not know why, that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man. What a turn. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Because really now the the, the Pharisees kind of, turn and make their theological stand against the the Sadducees. It's interesting, isn't it? Let's not forget our our friend, the poor Roman commander, standing on the sidelines again, (laughs) once again, and watch Paul say something that again infuriates the, the Sanhedrin. He's asking again, what is going on? What is it that's so controversial about this man and all that he says? that makes people go crazy like that. So, verse 10 tells us, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be fooled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him to the barracks. So again, he's he's confused. He had to intervene again. Now, we could take a pause and imagine what is going on in the heart and mind of Paul. In this particular moment and trial, but all through the missionary journeys, all through his life experience, we read about it in 2 Corinthians 11, for example, as he lists all of the the trials and troubles that he'd endured, being stoned and beaten and shipwrecked and imprisoned, etc., And now here he is being carted back to the barracks, put in this lonely cell, We can only imagine that the atmosphere must have been quite active and accusing him and wanting to bring him low in that moment. It would be easy for him to be discouraged. Have you ever been discouraged before? Right? 
And Paul, although he was an incredible man, an apostle and a great man of God, he was subject to like passions as we are. He was, uh, he was a human being. And he had th- those struggles. So this is why it says in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer. This is a, an expression, be of good courage, have, have a joy in your encouragement. And only the Lord uses that phrase. And the Lord encourages him. Why? Because he needed it. That's why it wasn't redundant. The Lord came alongside the faithful paraclete, the comforter, the one who comes alongside in the time of need, has a word in season for us. And he stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me at Rome. Now, that's quite a promise, isn't it? It's quite a prophecy. You think all of a sudden Paul knows, well, at least I know I'm not going to die in Jerusalem and I'm not going to die before I get to Rome. So there was a resting place in, in, in that for him for sure. So <clears throat> this is one of those special visitations or visions that Paul has in his life. And in fact, we mentioned this before, but there are six of them that I can identify. Maybe you might see one or two more. It depends on what you classify that, but not just that the Lord stood with him, but he spoke to him. He visited him. Um, We remember on the road to Damascus, his conversion experience. Um, After Damascus, when he first went back to Jerusalem, when the Lord said to him, welcome to Jerusalem, but please leave Jerusalem because they won't receive your testimony. And then he goes out to Arabia for three years where he has an abundance of revelations in 2 Corinthians 12. This is where we believe that the Lord really taught him the gospel and showed him the wonders of grace and the meaning of the cross and the body of Christ and all of these truths that come out in his, his letters was through the Arabian experience. And then on the uh, second missionary journey where they are in Troas, and they see that he has the vision of the man saying, come over and help us, not specifically a vision of Christ, but, but a vision we could know in Paul's life that was a significant one. Uh, missions, going first time into Europe. And then in, in Corinth, and again, with all kinds of opposition and trouble, the Lord comes alongside and says, do not fear, stand and speak. I have many people in this city. And then the last one we could mention is is this one right here. The Lord comes alongside and says, you bore witness of me in Jerusalem. Wasn't maybe very easy, but you did it, and you will also do it for me in Rome. So, 23.12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. So just before this, the Lord promised him, you're not going to die, not till you get to Rome. And then there were others who had something else in mind. That's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill Paul. So there's a conspiracy against him. This word banded together. It's the idea of a rope being twisted together. These, these men and these ideas and these thoughts and these intentions being woven together passionately 
that they would just kill Paul. And of course, they said, we will not eat or drink till they have killed Paul. Now, you might think, well, they didn't kill him, so they must have gone pretty hungry, (laughs) which they certainly did. But there was a way out that they could go to the rabbi. If your oath, if it was impossible for you to fulfill it, there was a way you could get released from it. But either way, they either died or they broke their oath or the rabbi helped them out. But they didn't kill Paul, is the point. There were more than 40 of them who had formed this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have bounded ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Such passion and hatred and zeal to kill Paul. This was the same passion and zeal and hatred that Saul of Tarsus had had himself against Christians. The same passion that had dragged Stephen out of the temple as the first martyr to be stoned in Acts 7. By now, we're used to this type of opposition against, uh, against Paul. Ironically, Paul hadn't done anything wrong. He wasn't a major criminal. Remember those charges that were brought against him? They were falsified. They weren't true. They weren't founded. He was not against the temple or the people or Moses. In fact, quite the opposite. He had such a heart for the Jewish people. He had such an honor for the law. He writes about it in Romans. The law is good. The law is holy. It's, It's man that's the problem. And the law was given so that man would be able to identify his problem. So um, he wanted his own people, of course, to know the Messiah. Even though he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he always carried that burden for his own people also. So verse 15, he says, says, Now you therefore, together with the council, this is what their plan is, Suggest that the commander be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. We know that the commander is a curious guy who's got a lot of questions. The commander will go along with it because he still hasn't got to the bottom of what the problem is. So let's bring him down again to the Sanhedrin. But just so you know, before he gets there, we're going to kill him. There's 40 of us. We've entered into this pact and we will kill him before before he comes near. So, it's a wonderful note of providence here in verse 16. When Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, this is the first and only time we hear about Paul's family, that he had a sister. All of a sudden, it sprung on us and His sister's son, his nephew, hears about the ambush. And we can't help but notice this little event in this commentary with the Romans and the Jews and the Sanhedrin and Paul in the prison. All of a sudden, there's this little nephew involved who becomes quite a key character in the the story. Because somehow, and we don't know how from the text, he hears about this, And he informs Paul about it. So he tells Paul in verse 16. 
Now remember, God had promised he would go to Rome. And he could have said, Paul could have said, and of course Paul wouldn't say this, but a man might say this, well, oh, okay, I I don't need to know that because God's got me covered. God's going to be taking care of it. It's okay, thanks for letting me know. But God's already promised me that I'm not going to die until I get to Rome. But Paul, I think, was very real and commonsensical and wise enough to know that God was in this. And this is so instructive for us because we could hyper-spiritualize our spiritual, our Christian life and think that we need to see some type of vision or have some type of dream. And we miss the very ordinary material that God uses to do that which is extraordinary, to do that which is supernatural. For this highlights God's hand of provision, that we recognize the hand of men, but as Christians we also recognize that the hand of God is in it. That God is moving pieces, moving people, moving hearts, orchestrating events to bring about his purpose. And there's something so pleasurable for us to acknowledge that as believers in the 21st century, in our own life, to realize that right in the trenches, right in the mud, right in the details of life, God has a plan and God is moving and God is faithful. God is not absent, but God is very present. God is very faithful. Um, it would be foolish. We know the 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 the... the, the parabolical stories about uh, a man who prays to God and says, oh God, will you help me? He's stuck on an island somewhere and, and, and a, a helicopter goes by and he, do you need help? No, no, I've prayed to God. He's going to help me. And then a ship goes by. Do you, do you not as a save you? No, I've prayed to God. He's going to help me. And then he comes before God and he says, why didn't you help me? He said, I sent a helicopter and a ship, right? And that's this. Paul recognizes that God was in this. Not accidental, but a wonderful uh, note of providence in the story. And this is the type of perspective that we are privileged to as believers, isn't it? What an incredible vantage point and perspective we have to consider not only our life and our little arena, but the whole of human history. The whole of global events, as we've been noting in the book of Daniel and through the scriptures, it beautifully highlights this truth. That God is not just divorced from it all and sitting back and thinking, boy, I hope this works out. There's nothing surprising him. He's in the details. He'll, he'll prompt the heart of a young nephew or whatever it might be in the right moment, in the right way. And it's wonderful because all of these huge things can be hinging on something so seemingly insignificant. So, I think how we view history says a lot about us and current events. So, Paul recognizes this and he sends the nephew, verse 17. He calls one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. Now, what's great about this is we're going to see these little links in the chain. We've got the, the nephew, the centurion, the commander, and Felix. It all starts with this, with this nephew. So, verse 28, 
He took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The commander took him by the hand, which perhaps indicates that he was a young, younger boy, and went aside and asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. He wasn't too young that he couldn't articulate and explain and understand exactly what was happening. He had a head on his shoulders. And he says, but do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him saying, let's keep this between me and you. Don't tell anyone else what you've told me. Obviously because he wouldn't want the conspirators to find out that he knows but perhaps also he wouldn't want people to find out that his informant was this young lad. But anyway, he wants it to be kept a secret. And he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, right? One centurion over 100. So two centurions, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which is 9 p.m. So all of a sudden, there's this large army accompaniment that is going to take Paul, this Roman citizen whose life has been threatened, and they're going to deliver him to the governor of Judah, Felix. So verse 24, it said, Provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And the commander decides, you know what, I'll send a note along. So he writes out this letter, and it's, Luke puts it in there for us. He wrote a letter the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. Now, he, he twists the facts a little bit to be a bit more favorable he, he makes himself out to be a bit of a hero. It's almost comical. But let's see what he says in verse 27. He says, This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Now, that's not exactly how it went down. First of all, you didn't find out he was a Roman until after you bound him, just before you were going to scourge him. Um, and secondly, the rescue, well, subject to interpretation, I guess. But he claims full responsibility for saving Paul, and he does it on the grounds that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. He could have put in there, and by the way, I still have no idea. And I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, 
but had nothing charged against him deserving a death or change. So he'd been able to gather, particularly from the Sanhedrin when he was before the council, that this was a religious issue, that he was making some claims about some guy who was supposed to be the Messiah and it was a conflict with the Mosaic law and I don't, who, I don't know or care. But what I do know, it, it's not a civil matter. He didn't break any law that we would be concerned about. So, verse 29, uh, verse 30, And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Sent him to you. Here's the letter. They'll tell you the rest. I've done my job, and he's over to you. And then the soldiers, and this is just the last of the chapter here, uh, showing us Paul's journey to Caesarea. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by the night to Antipatris, which if we would look at a map, here they are in Jerusalem. You're going uh, northwest. It's probably, uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, about 40 miles northwest of Jerusalem. They would have been traveling through the night. And at this point, Jerusalem is forever going to be behind the Apostle Paul. He's left Jerusalem never to return. Now he is fully on his way to Rome, albeit via Caesarea. And then finally, uh, he'll head on to Rome. So the next day in verse 32, they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. So the foot soldiers then returned to Jerusalem and the 70 remaining cavalry, etc., uh, escort Paul onto Caesarea, which, by the way, is one of the most incredible places in, in Israel you can visit. It's a beautiful coastal town with incredible archaeological remains of Herod's palace and the, the um, amphitheater, and it's a, an incredible uh, place to go. Perhaps we will walk that land together uh, one day. So he comes to Caesarea, and verse, uh, oh, I don't know why I've missed 33. When they came, no, that's verse 33. It's a typo there, sorry. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And the him being Felix. Now, Felix was the governor of Judea. That was a position that Pontius Pilate had um, had that position from 26 to 36 A.D., but Felix had it from 52 to 59 AD. So this dates it for us. And verse 34. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. Because Roman law required that before you would be tried, it would be established. What province are you from? Because the Roman citizen would have the right to be tried in his, in his home province. It turns out, that it was within Judea. He, he was from Cilicia. Remember, Tarsus is in Cilicia, north of the Mediterranean. So it was in that province anyway, so Felix could try him. And when he understood it was... Uh, and when the governor had read it and he asked what province he's from, uh, I think I might have missed the verse. And when he understood that he was from Sicilia... 
verse 35, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commissioned him to be kept in Herod's praetorium, or the governor's residence. Um, And the next chapter, and these chapters are beautifully tied off for us, because each one is a defense, if you like, or where Paul has to stand before another Roman official or another person on his journey to Rome. We've had, uh, we've had the Sanhedrin, we have Felix, we have Festus, we have Agrippa, and then finally he's going on to Rome. So this sets us up for the next chapter, which is 24, his stand and defense before the Roman governor, uh, Felix. So we'll end there now. And uh, perhaps someone has any questions or, or comments, feel free if there's anything on your heart or mind you'd like to ask. Yes. Yeah, it's the Pilati Stone. And uh, it's in the Jerusalem Museum, the original. But there's a copy of it actually in Caesarea, funny enough. Um, so you can see that because, of course, it would be weathered otherwise. But you can see it. And it, there clearly it says, you know, Pilate is on there because there was a time when it was questionable whether he was a real historical character. And, of course, critics of the Bible would say, Pontius Pilate, we've no record of it. But that, So that was a major discovery to verify the biblical account, yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? I find what's so interesting is the, the hatred these Jews had for Paul. I mean, really, Paul did nothing wrong in the sense that before his conversion, he diligently uh, did the work of 